Please open in your Bibles with me to the Gospel of Mark in chapter 6. Gospel of Mark chapter 6, we'll be picking back up in verse 30 and going through verse 34. Mark chapter 6, verses 30 through 34. Please join with me in prayer to our God. Lord God Almighty, we again boldly and joyfully approach unto Thee. We thank Thee for the praises which we were able to sing to Thee. We thank Thee for Thy Word read. Please bless it to our bodies and our souls. Lord, we ask, O God, for Thy Help as we preach, as we hear the word preached. O God, that thou wouldst apply it to our hearts, that would then flow out into our bodies, our hands, our feet, our tongue. That be reined in that evil tongue to only proclaim thy truths, to loudly shout thy praises to speak edification to our brethren. Lord, move our hearts, affect us as we study thy word. Help this preacher, this under-shepherd, whom thou hast appointed to accurately handle thy word, to apply it to the hearts of we, thy people. Lord, please help us to hear the word. Give us ears to hear eyes to see spiritual things, hearts to feel spiritual things, O God. Help us to set our eyes on Christ, to see his compassion, his love, his mercy, O Father. Holy Spirit, aid us. Bless us. Lord, equip us to live this Christian life. Help us to be attentive to the means of grace. The Lord rebuke Satan from taking the word from us. Lord, we again thank thee for this opportunity. We acknowledge our need of thee. Please lead us along. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Title of our sermon is The Compassion of Christ. Mark chapter 6, starting in verse 30, going through verse 34. Hear now the word of the Lord. And the apostles gathered themselves together unto Jesus and told him all things, both what they had done and what they had taught. And he said unto them, Come ye yourselves apart into a desert place and rest a while. For there were many coming and going, and they had no leisure so much as to eat. And they departed into a desert place by ship privately. And the people saw them departing, and many knew him, and ran afoot thither, out of all the cities, and out went them, and came together unto him. And Jesus, when he came out, saw much people, and was moved with compassion toward them, because they were as sheep, not having a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. May he bless it. Dear congregation, whenever a church goes through an extended exposition of a 
biblical book, a biblical narrative. It is forced to stop and consider even the small scenes, the small aspects that we might otherwise pass quickly over and not give much thought to. But we know, as 2 Timothy 3.16 says, that all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is what? Profitable. Is profitable. And we often find some of the most striking and instructive lessons in some of the most subtle and sublime passages. We are fast approaching in our exposition unto one of the most famous miracles of our Lord Jesus Christ, namely the feeding of the 4,000 with just a few loaves of bread and a couple of fish, miraculously sustaining this great multitude, giving them food so that they were all satisfied. But before we can undertake it, we are met with this passage now before us. Now, we could easily combine both the passage in front of us now and the feeding of the 4,000 together with this fuller narrative. But as the Spirit, the Holy Spirit brooded over the waters during creation, so too now he hangs about the written word, the Puritans would say. And he bids us to stay with him there, to linger some time over the word and to be instructed by him through it. So may he grant us both the desire and the heart to hear his word, to obey it, to love it, and to cherish it, rather than passing quickly over it. The word for us to consider is compassion. Compassion. The Lord Jesus continually demonstrates compassion in the gospel narratives. Continually. We saw this in Mark 1.41, where he had compassion on the leper who came to him and said, Lord, if thou art willing, thou canst make me clean. And he said, I am willing, be thou clean. How contrary is compassion, tender and sweet, selfless compassion to the natural state of fallen man. Yet how easily and naturally does compassion, selfless, loving compassion flow from Jesus Christ to people. It's very contrary. Now this should give us pause. That we who are so wicked, we who are so contrary, so selfish, we who are but dust and ash, animated dirt, could receive compassion from him, from our God, from Jesus. We should, at the thought of this, wonder, stand in wonder with Mary when she said that God had regarded our low estate. Truly he has. Christ has compassion on man in his sin, in his misery, in his sufferings. Man has utterly undone himself. We all have. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Yet Jesus has come to restore man, hasn't he? To redeem man. Wonder of all wonders. For us as believers, it should be. A wonder, indeed, that the heart of Christ is moved towards us at all, when we don't deserve it. Joy of all joys as well. Let us consider three things in our text. First, Christ's compassion for our labor. Christ's compassion towards our labor as Christians. Secondly, Christ's compassion for our bodies. Christ's compassion for our bodies. And third, Christ's compassion for the lost and the ignorant. First, 
Christ's compassion for the labors of we, his people. And comparing Mark's account to the other Gospels, it appears that the apostles are now returning from this missionary journey he sent them on prior, at the same time that the news of John's beheading is reaching Jesus. John was Jesus' beloved friend. John's, John leapt in the womb when he had Mary, who was pregnant with Jesus at the time, even near him. He was Jesus' friend, Jesus' follower, Jesus' forerunner. And now, Jesus hears of John's cruel and violent death. It would be natural to mourn. Natural and understandable to take a moment to gather one's thoughts. Take a break from this constant labor which Christ had been engaged in. However, now at the same time when he gets this news, Jesus is met by his apostles as they return from their missionary journey. He sent them out to labor in the ministry. And now they gathered themselves together unto Jesus, says verse 30, and told him all things, both what they had done and what they had taught. But does Christ send them away? Does Christ say, hold on a minute. I need to mourn. Wait. I need to rest. He does not ask that they return to him at a more convenient time, does he? Rather, he is compassionate towards his apostles to his disciples, to his followers. He's willing to hear all that they have done, all that they have taught in his name. And so too, dear believer, is our Lord Jesus always willing and ready to hear us as well. Now here we can learn a few things from the disciples. First, that they not only obediently accomplished the task that Jesus gave them to do, they went and they did the work, But they also then came and related it to him at its completion. It's good for us as believers, not only to do that which God has commanded us to do, but also then to relate it to him once we have accomplished it. Those are important things. Two sides of the same coin, even. We should not read this verse as though they simply told Jesus what happened. Just related a narrative, retold it. Told him facts, for he already knew. They not only repeated the narrative, but also commended it to Jesus. Laid it out before him, spread it forth before him. They asked his blessing upon it, that it might increase and bring forth much fruit. That is the common interpretation of many of the commentators. When we evangelize too, dear congregation, we must remember that preaching the gospel to sinners explaining to them the way of salvation and doing them good is only one part of the work. And indeed, I would argue, it's not even the greatest part of the work. That's where we begin. Gospel work has only just begun when we have used our mouths to speak to men. We must then turn and speak to God as well. It is good for us to spread all of our work out before the Lord, to commend it to him, both for its testing and for its blessing. We should lay our work out before the Lord. The disciples, no doubt, related all the miracles they had done. What particular diseases were cured at their hands, as well as what doctrines they taught. No doubt, Jesus also corrected any error in their practice or doctrine, if there was any. When we have done anything for God, dear congregation, when we have done anything for God, we must then come to him to have our work examined. 
to have it tried. We must bring it to the scriptures and pray to our God that he would reveal to us if there's any mixture of error in our practice or our teaching. When we have evangelized to someone, shared the gospel with someone, hand them a tract. When we have served God, we must then ask ourselves in prayer before God, did I speak any falsehood? Have I done a miss in any of my service? What areas could I improve upon so as to both teach and represent Christ and his gospel more accurately? It's a good thing to ask ourselves after we have worked for the Lord. Ministers of Christ specifically, but also all evangelical Christians shall also have to give an account, as Hebrews 13 says, for what we teach, what we do. For all things said and done in the name of Christ, we will have to give an account for. Our work and our teaching as Christians must be refined and improved. One of the primary ways this is, is bring it to bear on Scripture, thinking it out, consulting the Word of God, praying over it before God in humility. Yet, the work does not stop here either. Once we have shared the gospel, once we have brought it before the Lord for testing and examination, we must also ask his blessing. And this is key. We must also ask his blessing. Is it, it is a wonder, in my opinion, an absolute wonder, that we should complain of so little success in our evangelism and our preaching when we ask so little of God's blessing for it. This is a particular vice of preachers. I know this as a preacher personally. Once the sermon is finished, the temptation is to think that the work is finished too. The hard work of study, of thinking, of consulting books and commentaries, of writing, of praying, and now of preaching maybe ceased with the sermon's amen. But the preacher's work has only just begun, hasn't it? Mm. It's only just begun. He must then go and labor in prayer to God that the Lord would be pleased to make the word effectual which he has preached. That the labor would increase, that it would bear much fruit in his hearers. How many sermons one cannot even comprehend? How many sermons have been lost by the preacher's neglect of completing his work in prayer? Pastors are called to Give themselves to prayer in the ministry of the word, Acts 6.4 says. Now, it's a good practice for a minister to pray to God. Pray that he would make the sermon effectual unto each member of his church by name, both before and after the sermon. Both before and after the sermon. A pastor should not be confused if his sermons appear to fall flat upon his hearers, if he does not plead with God otherwise. Prayer is the first and the last work of all ministry. Now, this is true whether you are a private Christian or a pastor, a preacher, evangelist, that prayer is the first and the last work of all effective ministry. So whether you stand behind a pulpit in your gospel preaching or not, You must bring your gospel preaching to God for its blessing. After we have shared the gospel with someone, we have not completed the work. 
Unless we go to God and pray like the prophet Ezekiel did in Ezekiel 37, 9. Come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe upon these slain that they may live. We have to ask God's blessing. J.C. Ryle writes, quote, prayer is the main secret of success in spiritual business. It moves him who, could, who can move heaven and earth. It brings down the promised aid of the Holy Ghost, without whom the finest sermons, the clearest teachings, and the most diligent workings are all alike in vain. All alike in vain. End quote. How often do we all preach the gospel and leave it there? Leave it there. Think of it no further. We think to ourselves, ah, I have explained the way of salvation clearly, accurately, faithfully to such and such a person. Now it remains with them. I have done all my part. But we ought rather to think and train ourselves to think and cultivate such thinking as to say, God has allowed me to share the gospel with this lost sinner. I must now go to God and plead his blessing upon that person, that he would open their eyes, that he would take their heart of stone away and give them a heart of flesh, cause them to be born again. Oh, that God would save them. That is how we should think about those whom we minister to. This is only part of the work. Speaking the gospel to them is only part of the work. The full work is then to pray for God's effectual working upon it, both before we preach and after. Truly, Christ regarded the labor of his apostles, didn't he, when they came to him. He gladly heard them recount all that they have done and said in his name and for his glory. And he answered their pleas for correction and blessing. Jesus is compassionate to us in our labors, dear congregation. He's compassionate to us in our labors. If we labor for him, he will cause it to be effectual. Because it's his ministry. His salvation, his gospel, his word. He will make it effectual. Nothing interests Christ, one Puritan wrote, more than the faithful labors of his people done for his glory and honor. Jesus is not only willing to hear of our labors for him, but also to bless them. Let us not lose that blessing by neglecting to pray for it. Second, Christ's compassion for his people's bodies. Not only their labors, but also their bodies as Christians. We have to remember that we are flesh. We are flesh, simply animated dust. We are not the Lord God. We are the creation, not the creator. Our bodies and our minds must rest. The older I get, the more I resent sleep. The more I resent sleep. The sands of time seem to be slipping through my fingers. And the need of sleep only seems to add insult to injury. I think a lot of us can agree. But this is a heinous and prideful rebellion against God. To think such a way. Only of Jehovah God can it be said that he shall neither slumber nor sleep. Psalm 121.4. Man must sleep. Man must rest because man is dependent. In fact, we read that God giveth his beloved sleep. Psalm 127 verse 2. Man must rest because man is not God. This is true no matter how we feel about it. When the disciples return from their journey. They're, they're weary in both body and mind. 
from this constant ministry which they were engaged upon. And now Jesus has compassion on their weak frame, their bodies themselves as well. And he says, come ye yourselves apart into a desert place and rest a while. A solitary place. Verse 31. Many people from all over the area were still coming unto both the apostles and Jesus. They're coming out. They want to see him. They want to see the ministry. They want to hear the ministry. They want to see the miracles and benefit from them. There's still much work to be done, right? But Jesus is a compassionate God, isn't he? He considers the apostles' need of rest. It is only God and God alone who can labor without ever growing weary. Only God. The disciples need rest even if they do not realize it. There are many type A people and very diligent workers, even here in our midst this this afternoon. We must consider, though, our earthly frame. We must submit to the compassionate rest that Jesus offers us. If we are not careful, we can end up rejecting the compassion of Christ towards us, can't we? God has given us even a weekly Sabbath, a weekly Lord's Day, to remind us of our dependence of our need of rest, and where that rest is to be found, namely in himself. Our bodies and our minds are frail, are frail. And they must at times be still in order to rejuvenate. But let us also avoid a similar error on the other side, that godly rest, which God compassionately offers us, is not the same as indolence, is it? That's another error. People can think that resting from our labors as Christians then means indolence. How often we seek rest in worldly things. Seek refreshment from worldly things from our Christian labors. But our rest is not found there as Christians. We retire to the television maybe. We retire to the video game console, the computer, some fleeting conversation only to our own harm. When we try to replace the energy that we need to live as Christians with those things. Not that those things are never permissible, but when we use them as a way to recuperate as Christians and think that our strength will be renewed by that, that's when it becomes an issue. It becomes detrimental to us. Mm-hmm. When we have been sapped of energy from our labor, serving God in the workplace, in our family, in ministry, whatever it may be, we must go to God for refreshment again. In Christ, we find rest for our souls, Matthew eleven twenty eight and 9. This is true rest. Our labors are to be done in God, and our rest is to be had in God also. Now, the context of our passage deals specifically with rest, resting from the labor of ministry, doesn't it? This, again, applies first to pastors, but also to every Christian. Also to every Christian. Have any of you ever spent some hours engaged in an evangelistic work? Sitting down with somebody, sharing the gospel with them, laboring with souls in the gospel, explaining the way of salvation, answering objections, opening the word of God and pointing them to Christ. Perhaps you've spent a few days or a week on a mission trip, ministering the gospel to needy sinners. So though you found it, it was a great joy, even the greatest joy, to labor in such a way that there could be no greater labor on earth than working 
and the gospel for Christ, yet you also sensed the weariness of your body and your mind afterward, didn't you? Yeah, we've all been there. Even in our ministering Christ's gospel, by Christ's power, we still grow weary because we are but flesh, just as the disciples grew weary here after their ministry. With what kindness, with what compassion does Christ say to them, come and rest, come away and rest. Dear congregation, even the most active and faithful servants that we've looked at throughout church history, those men and women that still exist today, that seem to just be unstoppable for the Lord Jesus, cannot always be laboring for him. Even they cannot. None of us shall be able to serve God without ceasing day and night until we come to heaven, where, as Revelation 4, 8 says, we shall never rest from praising him. It commonly occurs that when we are too much given to the work of God upon others, upon their souls, that we then end up neglecting our own soul's needs, as did the bride in the Song of Solomon. She was always at the keeping of others' vineyards, belonging those who belonged to others. She was diligent and faithful in serving them and tending to those vineyards. But she says in chapter 1, verse 6, But mine own vineyard I have not kept. We must care for our own spiritual needs also, dear congregation. I've spoken with many seminary students, many pastors, elders, deacons, missionaries, and evangelists who have told me that they do not have a regular set time of daily and systematic scripture study and prayer because they consider that their preparation for teachings, for sermons, for prayer meetings, for papers and book reports is their devotions. I'm in the word. What's the difference? Well, in this, they have neglected their own vineyard, haven't they? They've rejected the compassionate rest of Christ toward their own soul. But not only such ministers of the gospel, elders and deacons, so too must all Christians jealously guard their own spiritual life. Must keep our vineyard. Our ministry unto others must flow out of Christ's ministry to us in his word and in prayer. Not replace it. Mm. Not replace it. It must flow out of what Christ is ministering to us. Not replace it. But I fear that for most modern Christians in America, this is not really a problem, is it? Their active ministries serve no danger to their soul's rest because they do quite little for Christ. J.C. Ryle, in his day, it was no better. He, he writes these words, quote, There are few, unhappily, in the church of Christ who need such admonitions. There are but few in danger of overworking themselves and injuring their own bodies and souls by excessive attention to others. The vast majority of professing Christians are indolent and slothful and do nothing for the world around them. There are few, comparatively, who need the bridle nearly so much as they need the spur. End quote. Let this serve as an exhortation as unto duty as well. And looking at Christ offering rest and bringing the apostles away to rest with him, let us also take it as an exhortation to duty in our Christian life. We need rest. 
when we serve God for our souls and our bodies. We need rest. But let us then therefore labor for Christ to need such rest. We are called to rest in Christ, but only once we have labored for Christ. Third, Christ's compassion for the lost and the ignorant. As Christ went with his disciples, that they could have some rest for their mind, for their body, for their soul. Still many continue to fall. We read that the people saw them departing and many knew him and ran a foot thither out of all the cities and outwent them, meaning outran them, and came together unto him. We might expect that if Jesus were like us, that he would begrudge their coming unto him during a time of rest. That he would chasten them for their interruption. That he might tell them, come back some other time. Now is my time to rest with my disciples, not care for your needs. But that's not what occurs. We read in verse 34, And Jesus, when he came out, saw much people and was moved with compassion toward them, because they were as sheep, not having a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. So Jesus, rather than being resentful that they're interrupting his time of rest, was compassionate. Christ was more than anything else a preacher. And preach he did. Man's body needs rest, but not as much as his soul needs Christ, needs Mm. salvation. Jesus tells us in Luke 19.10, The Son of Man has come to seek and save that which was lost. As the good shepherd, Jesus came to gather and tend to his sheep. He's the good shepherd. And now he sees these sheep lost. All unbelievers are as sheep without a shepherd. They are lost. They're left wandering in dry plains without food, without hope. These poor souls are coming out to hear Jesus, to hear him preach of the kingdom of God, to hear the words of eternal life preached, to have the way of salvation open to them by Christ and his disciples. Imagine the scene. More than 4,000, as we'll see next week. Thousands of immortal souls are now standing before Jesus, ignorant, hopeless, helpless, dead in their sins and transgressions and on the path to hell. They were destitute of teachers. They had no guides but the blind guides of the scribes and the Pharisees. They had no spiritual food but man-made traditions offered to them by the scribes and the Pharisees. And this moved Christ's gracious heart, didn't it? It moved his heart to compassion. He was moved with compassion towards them. He began to teach them many things. Though we should never view men as victims. People are not victims. Sinners are not victims. We should never view them as such. They're rebels at war against Jesus. They love their sin and they hate God and they willfully neglect and break his commandments. That's the truth. Yet, though we are not to see them as victims, yet we can, like Jesus, pity them. We can pity them. We should have compassion on the lost. They are as we all once were, as Christians even. In Ephesians 2, 12, without Christ, strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope, and without God in the world. Mm. That's where they are. We all were once there also. 
The only thing that separates us as Christians from the rest of mankind is what? Grace. That we've received grace. By grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, Ephesians 2, 8. Let us not boast in ourselves, but in Christ. We have become receivers of Christ's compassion. But all lost people still remain the objects of his compassion also. It is true that Christ has a special love for his sheep. Those, who, those sheep who hear his voice, who come to him in faith. But yet his heart is still moved with compassion on the lost. He still has a strong general love for all of mankind. Let's not forget that our Lord is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He never changes. He's currently high in heaven at God's right hand. And yet he still looks with compassion on the children of men, doesn't he? He still pities the ignorant and them that are out of the way, them that are lost in their sins and transgressions, dead in their sins and transgressions. He is still willing to teach many things unto these ignorant lost souls. We must not overlook this. I don't care who teaches it. It is a poor theology which teaches that Christ does not care for anyone except believers. Except for believers. There is warrant in scripture for telling even the chief of sinners, even a Hitler, that Jesus pities them and cares for their souls and that Jesus is willing to save them and that he invites them to believe and be saved. We have no warrant to say anything else. Scripture says that very thing. I love Spurgeon's counsel to souls when they would say, I'm the worst sinner there is. There's no way I can be saved. I understand your gospel message. I believe that the Bible is God's word, but I'm the worst sinner who has ever lived. Spurgeon would always say, well, Paul actually said he was the chief of sinners, so you're at worst, second worst. And Paul was saved. So we have warrant. Tell any sinner that Christ extends his compassion, his mercy, his pity to them, and he offers them salvation, invites them to believe and be saved. Indeed, Jesus is willing to teach lost and ignorant souls many things. But that means, dear congregation, that we as Christians must ourselves be willing. Are we? Are we willing to teach the way of salvation unto the lost? Do we have the compassion of Christ? Are we concerned about the souls of the unconverted like he is? Do we, like he does, feel the deep compassion for all who are as sheep without a shepherd? Do we care about the impenitent, unrepentant, and ungodly near our own doors? Do we care about the heathen, the Jew, the Muslim, and the Roman Catholic in foreign lands? Do we then therefore use every means available to us and give our money willingly even to spread the gospel in the world? These are serious questions and they demand serious replies. I quote J.C. Ryle again who said, quote, The man who cares nothing for the souls of other people is not like Jesus Christ. It may well be doubted whether he has even converted himself or that he knows the true value of his own soul. End quote. Dear congregation, our Lord Jesus Christ told us in Luke 10 too, that the harvest 
is truly great, but the laborers are few. Pray ye therefore, the Lord of the harvest, said Jesus, that he would send forth laborers into his harvest. Are we willing to go out into the Lord's harvest? It doesn't mean that you sell everything you have and move to Indonesia or something. Are we willing to just gather a few sheaves for his glory? Will we be willing to turn aside to a few lost sinners and say, God made his son Jesus, who never knew any sin, dear friend, to take the punishment of sinners upon himself, that they might be made the righteousness of God and him? Are we willing to do that to our neighbors, to people on the subway, if we had subways around us, to people in the stores, our coworkers? our unbelieving friends and family. We don't have to move to Indonesia to work for Christ. Mm. The more wicked our age becomes, I have noticed in myself, the more hardened my heart has turned towards those wicked people. Mm. When it should rather grow more compassionate, shouldn't it? More compassionate. I become more willing to leave lost sinners in their state of sin than to lead them in the way of salvation. Especially as it's broadcast into our minds and our eyes and our ears on a daily basis through the media. Good, let them burn, says my wicked heart at times. When rather I should have compassion. Rather I should long that they would be trophies of Jesus Christ and his glory, and his mercy. I'd rather leave them where they are at times. But shall we stand where Christ doesn't? If his hand remains extended to them, should not ours? If he be compassionate upon them in their sin and their ignorance, should not we also? If he's willing to teach them the way of salvation, shall we act Contrary to our Lord, we do foolishly if we do such things. Christ is willing that none of his elect shall perish. And we don't know who those elect are. So are we willing that his elect should perish? Dear congregation, indeed, let us spend and be spent for the cause of Christ. Let us give all of our labor our goods, and our time to him who has redeemed us. But let us remember to also rest in him. We must not neglect our bodies. We must not neglect our minds or our souls in serving him. We must go to Christ, the fount of our souls, to be refreshed, renewed, and empowered to continue serving him. Let us pray with the Apostle Paul that God would grant us, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with might by his Spirit in the inner man. Ephesians 3.16 If we go to the arm of the flesh, dear congregation, to strengthen us, we shall only be made the worse for it. We must go to him who is our strength, who is our shield, who is our fortress, who is our high tower, our very life even. But having drank deeply at those wells of eternal life, of eternal salvation, let us turn again and point needy sinners who are around us to that same well, saying, Come, let him that is a thirst come, and whosoever will, 
Let him take up the waters of life freely. Revelation twenty two seventeen. If we, dear congregation, have experienced the kindness and the compassion of the Lord Jesus Christ, let us then also have compassion on those who have not. God will certainly not hold those guiltless who neglect the salvation that is offered to them and his son, Jesus Christ. But nor will he hold us guiltless if we forego making a free offer of salvation to all who neglect Jesus Christ. Jesus is compassionate to sinners. Let us make ready use of him ourselves, as well as press the same upon those around us. As our Lord said in John six twenty seven, Labor not for the meat which perisheth, but for that meat which endureth unto everlasting life, which the Son of Man shall give unto you. For him hath God the Father sealed. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we once again come unto thee. We ask God that by gratitude for what Christ has done for us, we would be encouraged, empowered, exhorted to labor for thee and for thy gospel. But Lord, that we would take our strength from thee, not go out in our own strength. Lord, that we would take our rest in thee. Lord, that we would have a compassionate heart for the lost as thou dost. That we be made in the image of thy Son, O Father. Holy Spirit, aid us, strengthen us, grant us faith. Lord Jesus, be thou glorified in us. Let us see thee as our life. Heavenly Father, help us to do all things for thy glory. In Jesus' name, amen.